You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Catherine Putz, also in Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Katie. How's it going? Doing great. This uh, early fall weather is delightful. It is indeed. And um, like like we said on the last episode, uh, geopolitics has not stopped in Asia uh, and, and certainly around the world while um, we have been traveling a little bit. Uh, but... One of the issues that I don't think we can overlook is the incredibly odd state of India's ties right now with Canada. Uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that if you had to rank the countries that India has the most geopolitical trouble with right now, that list might look like this. Pakistan, China, and Canada. And that's <laughs> not necessarily something that a lot of folks expected. Uh, but let's talk about, of course, what's going on here. I'm sure many of our listeners have seen the striking headlines uh, out of Canada and India over the last couple weeks that stand at the middle of this incredibly complicated and messy uh, bilateral dispute. Um, so the place to begin, I think, just by way of background, is with Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister's remarks on the 18th of September. Uh, Trudeau, speaking before the Canadian Parliament, alleged that Canadian security services were pursuing, quote, credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a man known as Hardeep Singh Nijar. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about who Nijar was in a second. But the big picture here and sort of the explosive claim uh, is that India's clandestine security service, the research and analysis wing, uh, was implicated in an extrajudicial killing on the soil of a G7 and NATO member state, Canada. Uh, and uh, Trudeau, we later learned in the press, had actually raised this with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi during the G20 summit uh, in New Delhi. Uh, and um, Modi, uh, in, in return, raised concerns about Canada's involvement with um, so-called uh, what India considers to be extremist uh, groups relating to the Khalistan movement, which I think we have to talk about here for just a second. Um, so mm -hmm. th th there's a long history here that we don't really have to get into um, or, or don't really have the time to get into on on this short podcast. But but broadly speaking, the Khalistan movement uh, is a Sikh separatist movement that traces its origins back uh, several decades. Um, and, and in particular, India and Canada have a long history uh, dealing with the Khalistan movement. Um, there's there was a tremendous amount of violence in India in the mid-1980s, uh, eventually resulting uh, in the assassination of an Indian prime minister, Indira Gandhi, by her, um, by her personal bodyguards, uh, who happened to be uh, sympathetic to um, the, the cause that um, eventually um, led to just a major um, period of strife in India. Um, meanwhile, um, there is a large uh, Sikh diaspora, uh, not just in Canada, but uh, in the United States and the United Kingdom uh, and elsewhere, that remains uh, sympathetic to the cause of Khalistan, which is broadly a, uh, a separatist movement to establish an independent Sikh country uh, in, broadly speaking, the territory that correlates to the modern uh, Indian state of Punjab uh, and, and parts of Pakistan. Uh, as well. Uh, now, India considered this, uh, considers this movement to be an extremist terrorist group, a separatist group, and has reacted harshly to what it perceives as a high level of tolerance by countries like Canada and the UK to activities by these groups. And so that gentleman I, I referred to earlier, uh, Hardeep Singh Nijar, uh, who was killed allegedly by agents of the Indian state, uh, New Delhi alleges was involved uh, in the Khalistan movement and involved in training um, separatists 
who were operating in India with small arms and other tactics that India believed were to be used in fomenting violence within its borders. So that's the broader background here. Uh, and um, the tough thing about this, Katie, of course, is that um, the allegations from the Canadian government, uh, based on what we've seen in the press, appear to be based on highly sensitive human and signals intelligence. Uh, mm -hmm. So this is the kind of stuff that the Canadians, uh, for understandable reasons, aren't eager to publicize. Uh, we also have seen reporting suggesting that the United States, uh, Canada's closest ally, uh, a, a member of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, provided some of the intelligence here. So there's a lot to talk about. I think this fundamentally raises some questions about uh, India's broader pursuit of um, its objectives overseas, uh, the growing muscular nature of Indian foreign policy, and now apparently uh, overseas clandestine activities. But that's the overview, Katie. What do you make of all this? And and what should we really be um, kind of making sense of here? Well, I mean, I, I think that was, that was an excellent uh, short introduction to the to all of these issues. Um, you know, it was a very shocking kind of thing. It is not often uh, that one government accuses another government of killing someone in its territory. Uh, and, and as you noted, these are these are allegations which are difficult from the outside to verify uh, because we don't have all of the information. As you pointed out, um, it's been reported that, you know, this some of this intel came from possibly the United States. It came from a Five Eyes intelligence partner, though the specifics of which of the Five Eyes uh, brought that intelligence is, has not been uh, really claimed. Uh, but I, I think it really gets to the heart of this tension between sort of India's domestic situation and its international ambitions and the partnerships it's trying to seed itself into. You know, Canada is not, for example, a quad country, but Canada is an intimate friend of the United States. Uh, you know, the the United States and Canada are, are, are have, you know, very long history together. We share a continent. I, I think there's certain difficulties that a problem between Canada and India can introduce into sort of these alliances and groups that India wants to be part of. Uh, but this particular kind of tactic is something we see in heavily autocratic countries. I think in, in our prior discussion before, before recording this uh, episode, I, I said, you know, Canada and India are maybe not my areas of expertise, but but countries that go into other countries to uh, harass or assassinate or, or kidnap people, that's something I know about. This is something that Tajikistan does in Russia. This is something that Russia has done in the UK. Uh, this is something that China has done in a number of countries. And so that's the group that this, this particular kind of behavior, if it is what happened, this is the kind of group that that puts India into. And I think that that, that is a really uncomfortable thing uh, when you sort of contrast that with Modi, uh, you know, in the United States at the White House and sort of this this sort of uh, democratic ally, like-minded countries, allies and partners, that language is really hard to square with that kind of tactic. Mm -hmm. um, one thing, one question I had sort of for you is, you know, when we look at what is what is your view on how this places India in between all of these different shifting alliances. Um, I, I think it's just, it was a very shocking thing, certainly. And, and I think, I don't know how they're gonna get to a better place because India's position is so firm and Canada's position seems to be pretty firm also. And there's not there's not really a great middle ground between those two positions. Yeah, no, this is, this is you know, I think, I think you've said a lot that's uh, really at the center of this, right? I think, I think the one thing to flag, though, is the reaction in India has been just, I mean, uh, 
really electrifying. Uh, I mean, this has this has actually, I mean, not even cleaved along partisan lines in the country, right? Members of the Congress party uh, have been outraged at Canada, just as, of course, members of the ruling BJP have. Um, I think I think there's, um, as you as you sort of hinted at, uh, Katie, allegations of you know double standards. I mean, India doesn't understand, for instance, why um, the United States uh, and Israel get to carry out killings outside of their borders and why it can't do the same. Of course, India doesn't accept that this killing was carried out by the research and analysis wing. But basically, I think a lot of the Indian diplomatic language boils down to, you know, we didn't do it, but he deserved but it. But if we did. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Um, and, you know, I think the point to make here is just the there's a huge divergence, I think, in perceptions, right? I think Western countries do make a difference between extrajudicial killings outside of um, outside of their borders in countries that perhaps don't have strong institutions and the rule of law versus uh, similar killings carried out by countries that 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 do have these systems, right? The Canadians, for their part, claim that their legal system took a look at Hardeep Singh Najjar's alleged connections and arrived at an unproblematic assessment, largely, of his activities. And the other matter is, you know, freedom of expression, right? As as mm -hmm. a citizen of a, um, I mean, not even a citizen. I mean, you know, as a, as a resident uh, of of many of you know many liberal Western societies, uh, calling for calling for the breakup of a foreign country is protected speech, right? That is not illegal, uh, mm -hmm. right? I mean, just as. Um, members of the Chinese diaspora living in the United States have a right to call for a free Tibet or uh, or an independent uh, you know state for the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Uh, so too do Canadian Sikhs have the ability to peacefully assemble and call for the establishment of Khalistan. That is the Canadian case, and that is the the way in which um, liberal Western societies largely approach this issue. Uh, and that is, of course, unacceptable to India, which I think expects that. Its perception of the threat that these separatist organizations and movements pose to its internal security should be shared by its its partners and allies overseas, which is just not the way this works at all. Um, mm -hmm. The other factor here, and I think we've talked about this on previous podcasts about uh, Indian behavior um, under the Modi government in particular, I think as there is a growing perception that India is deeply important to the United States and much of the West in the broader geopolitical confrontation with China, there is a more permissive environment for India to take greater risks because the West will ultimately come to the conclusion, uh, as it perhaps did with Saudi Arabia after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, that mm -hmm. a partnership with India is more important than making a huge stink over a single extrajudicial ki killing. Uh, and I think that is uh, explicitly stated by a lot of Indian commentators, by the way. If you read the Indian op-ed pages, um, you know, it, this is an argument that is openly made, that India is too important uh, to the United States, and ultimately the U.S. will pick India's side over Canada, which I don't necessarily think is a good bet, by the way. Uh, I think I think that fails to sort of acknowledge the um, the closeness of the U.S. relationship with Canada, you know, the fact that Canada is a G7 and NATO partner um, that, of course, um, shares a, a deep intelligence and defense relationship with the United States. Uh, that, I think, is quite important. But at the same time, I think... Um, a lot of the commentary that I've seen um, from some folks who don't necessarily understand the violence in India in the 1980s, the implications of the Khalistan movement, uh, I think ignorance of that history, I think, partially obscures what's motivating this highly unified Indian response uh, to this incident. Mm -hmm. Right. That's not to say that extrajudicial killing is, is an acceptable response if India did did carry this out. But it does miss, I think, why India is reacting in the way that it is and why we've seen this terrible uh, decline in India-Canada relations. Um, so, 
there's, I think, a lot of kind of perception gaps on both sides. But ultimately, I think this is, you know, this can be interpreted as part of the consequences of a rising India internationally, right? This is the kind of thing that we've seen um, great powers do. Uh, rising powers, uh, in, in India's case, are, are, are likely to expand the course of what they engage in overseas. Um, and importantly, I think this is, you know, we've seen signs of this for some time. India has just grown a lot more risk acceptant uh, under the BJP government of Modi. Uh, Ajit Doval, the head of Indian um, India's national security advisor, uh, you know, very publicly indicated an intent to implement a more um, muscular approach to overseas intelligence, uh, uh, you know, going back years. And I think this is largely a manifestation of just many of these forces. I, th I think uh, I just wanted to tug on the idea of a perception gap because I thought that that was a very smart comment that you pointed out, you know, that both in the perception of, of why India cares so much about this particular issue. But I think that also kind of sheds a light on, I think a lot of Western understanding of India is really surface level and, and people might think India is just one homogenous Indian country and there, it contains multitudes and India is aware of its multitudes and how that can create friction. And then another area of, of perception is going a little bit further back in your comment in how what we in Washington may view as free speech is viewed as a security threat um, by India, several other countries they previously mentioned, most of Central Asia is kind of like this, where the speech itself is what is threatening because it can plant the idea of something that then can turn into something. Whereas, you know, the Canadian justice system, like you said, looked at this guy and, and made a conclusion that he wasn't an actual threat to anybody because their understanding of what a threat is, is different. Um, you know, again, this is not at all to excuse extrajudicial killing. It's not good uh, anywhere. But I think there are these complexities both about what India is and what India cares about and in that perception in what what is a security risk, what is a threat um, and, and, you know, what kind of threat that poses. And this also, I think, highlights, you know, at least for me. So when we see Modi visit uh, Western countries, you know, when he comes to the United States, when he goes to Australia, you know, he often holds these sort of mega rallies that are filled with with the Indian diaspora. And I think that does create kind of that perception that the Indian diaspora is one thing. And that the truth is that, that it's many things. And one aspect of that is the Sikh diaspora. Uh, there's an awful lot of Sikhs in Canada. And, and I, I think they they migrated in waves uh, over the decades after partition. Um, it probably in part because of this tension between wanting an independent Khalistan and not being able to sort of see themselves in, in India. Um, but I, I think sort of an appreciation of the diversity within that diaspora is maybe something that's lacking. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, look, um, you know, like I like I said, I mean, this is this is an issue that a lot of countries face. Right. I mean, I mean, India, for crying out loud, hosts the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan government in exile. Right. Yep. <laughs> uh, and, and that's a and that's been a, a longstanding sore point uh, between uh, India and and China. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think, you know, there is a cold realist logic uh, to to what India allegedly has done here, right, with uh, with this mm -hmm. extrajudicial killing. But ultimately, I think it's a point of respect for the Internet, um, for the internal rule of law and um, political system of, of the Canadian state, which is what I think is being missed in a lot of the uh, Indian discourse on the Western reaction, on the Canadian reaction to this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, you know, the United States, like I said, Israel, like I said, you know, carry, you know, these countries carry out killings in other countries, but not fundamentally countries of, um, you know, not fundamentally in places where they respect the rule, um, the the political system and the rule of law of that country in question, right? So I think that yeah, is I a key difference. I think, for for example, you know, um, 
uh, Zawahiri, the, yeah. the Al-Qaeda leader who was was killed in a drone strike in, in, in Kabul, it's not like the United States could have gone to the Taliban government and asked them to bring him to justice, and they would have done that. Um, and so those are fundamentally different cases. I think that's a good thing to point out. Uh, and then I, I just had one other thought I want to throw in before we, we maybe wrap this up. Um, you know, maybe within the U.S.-Canada dynamic, this allows Canada to be the one that presses India on some of these issues. Uh, and the United States is not going to push back on Canada necessarily, but is it, isn't the one doing it to India. So it, it kind of suits both purposes. It, it, it airs these kind of grievances without the United States being the one that's criticizing uh, India. I'm not at all saying that the United States is, is behind this, but it, it seems mm -hmm. to be in the U.S. interest for India to both get a little bit shamed for this kind of thing without Washington being the one doing it uh, since it has so many things going on with in which India is a vital part. Yeah. But it's just, that's just my, my reading of that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think in closing Katie, what I would say here is uh, I think this incident is ultimately serving as a bit of a wake up call uh, for a lot of folks uh, in the West who've had, as you said, that simplistic narrative about what a rising India means uh, for um, Western interests in the Indo-Pacific competition with China, etc. Uh, I think it's a reminder that uh, India ultimately um, is a country with interests that won't always align uh, and, and certainly values that won't always align with the West. Uh, I mean, uh, to the credit of the Biden administration, their national security strategy is quite open about the fact that the United States will partner where necessary with countries that don't necessarily uh, share American values. But at the same time, you do continue to see that value-based rhetoric uh, um, explaining why the United States continues to see India as, as such an important partner. Uh, so, you know, TBD on how this story is going to continue to play out. Um, another thing we haven't really talked about is uh, a lot of Indian commentary has focused on Canadian domestic politics in explaining this. You know, this is an Asia <laughs> geopolitics podcast. I'm not going to go too much into Canadian domestic politics because, frankly, I don't think that's that's really the motivation here. Um, I think, uh, you know, Trudeau's motivations for making this public allegation in front of Parliament have more to do with the fact that this would have leaked in the Canadian media uh, anyways, uh, based on what's been uh, what's been publicly reported. But I think I think we'll leave it there. Uh, hopefully that provided listeners with a bit of an overview of uh, what exactly has been going on behind the scenes here between India and Canada. And uh, yeah, we'll see where this shakes out. I think uh, there's a very high probability that India-Canada ties will remain rather strained for a while, even if they can find a face-saving way on both sides to um, set this issue aside. Uh, I don't think the level of mistrust that's been brought out into the open will dissipate all too quickly. So uh, thanks a lot for joining me, Katie. It's always a pleasure, Ankit. Great. So for listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, make sure you leave us a review. You can do that anywhere you get your podcast. It really helps the show. And finally, if you have suggestions for future episodes, uh, definitely feel free to reach out to either myself or Katie, and we'd be very happy to take that into consideration. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.